Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to ALR PRA Weekly Law Practice Management Radio. Today is Thursday, June 10th, 2010, and I am your host, Nick Augustine. ALR PRA is a national law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving law firm and business clients in greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. Our six areas of activity are as follows. One, our legal work and staffing division called Pleading Drafter. Two, our PR and marketing division called Law Publicist. Three, our Audit and Compliance Division. Four, the Law Publicist Weekly Online Publication. Five, our monthly practice management and social media conference calls. And finally, number six, this weekly radio program featuring guest speakers who present relevant practice tips and legal trends in various practice areas. Today's guest is law practice management expert Ed Pohl. Ed is a frequent contributing author to the American Bar Association Law Practice Management Series, and he is also the principal of Law Biz Management and its affiliated groups. Ed is an experienced attorney who provides consulting on law firm business matters. Ed's consulting service helps attorneys take their law practice to the next level of success. Ed is going to tell us a little bit today about Law Biz Management Company and how he works with lawyers to increase their profits and effectiveness in the way they practice law. Law Biz Management Services provide possible solutions to law practice management challenges and include legal coaching, customized consulting services, keynote speaking and training seminars, assistance for buying and selling law practices, law firm retreats, managing partner roundtables, articles and other resources including the Law Biz Management e-zine and blog. Law Biz Management products include a number of books, DVDs, and virtual seminars by Ed Pohl, CDs and audio cassettes and numerous articles are available. Uh, Ed also has a new book uh, titled Growing Your Law Practice in a Tough Time, which was recently published and released by West Thompson Reuters. Ed additionally will be uh, speaking at a conference here in Chicago regarding small law firms on September 21st. Uh, Ed has also been gracious enough to offer a free 15-minute consult to anyone who contacts him uh, regarding his appearance on this radio show today, June 10th, 2010. Ed, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, Nick. Ed, today uh, we look forward to hearing a little bit of your information in four segments uh, as follows. First, effective client relations. Second, metrics for success. Third, billing and collecting fees. And finally, selling and, and or buying a law practice. Now, before we begin, we want to remind our callers that we do broadcast every Thursday afternoon at 3 p.m. Central, which is also 4 p.m. Eastern, and 1 o'clock Pacific Time. From time to time, we also bring you special broadcast episodes when there is breaking news that you need to stay on top of your practice areas. Today, we do have a great show for you, and we will open up for callers 30 minutes after begin. And be sure to email your questions to info, which is I-N-F-O, at A-L-R-P-R-A, and also by calling in by dialing area code 917-889-9732 and by pressing option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. Again, that telephone number is 917-889-9732, option 1 for the caller queue. Uh, now, without any further ado, we go to Ed Pohl, uh, who is going to talk first about effective client relations. Well, Nick... One of the things you have to do before you know whether you can be effective or at least move toward effective plateau in professional relationships is first to figure out what is it that clients want. And in today's world, 
Clients essentially want lawyers who provide solutions to their problems. As I was talking with uh, managing partner yesterday in a small law firm, uh, he said in his experience, clients want to tell you what their problem is and go on about the rest of their life. They want you to handle their problem. They don't care whether you have to make a motion for summary judgment, whether you have to write a third draft of a contract, or whatever it may be. They want you to handle it. They don't want to be involved. Sort of like the magician. You know, they come into your office, they tell you what their problem is, and they walk out feeling as though the burden were lifted from their shoulders. That's what they want. So, in essence, clients are looking for lawyers who can provide solutions to their problems. They're looking for lawyers who know their business and their industry. They're looking for lawyers, at least in the business context, who are willing to share in their risks and the rewards of the transaction. And this comes about, uh, for example, in personal injury matters where the lawyers generally take a percentage of the uh, result. In other words, a success fee. And this is prevalent also in other arenas. And of course, in today's world, we have a new phenomenon, and I'm not sure it's really new, but we think it's new, called alternative billing or value billing. And clients are happy to pay for something that they perceive is of value to them. I remember a number of years ago, I had a client who I billed on an hourly basis, and he never paid me. I did other matters for him as well, and for those, he, he uh, paid. And so I asked him one day, I said, Saul, listen, you're not paying this bill. What's the issue here? He said, well, the matter's not resolved. When it's resolved, and we know what the result is, I'll pay you, not a problem. And in fact, he did. But he wanted to wait until the conclusion of the matter to see what the success was. And clients also want lawyers who are able to draw the line between what's appropriate work and what is legal thoroughness. Or said another way, they want to make sure they're not paying for CYA work to make sure that you're not uh, accused, of, you're not uh, or cannot be accused of malpractice, of negligence, of failing to uncover anything and everything under every stone. They're not interested in that kind of thoroughness. They want the job done. Uh, I remember talking to the assistant general counsel of a major electronics firm a number of years ago, and she said that in one litigation matter, she was able to save for her company over half a million dollars. And the reason for it was very simple. Without changing the hourly rate of the attorney, she was able to budget the matter with the outside counsel such that when the law, the law firm wanted to take you know, 15 depositions, she said, look, seven of those depositions will not yield any results. So just take the eight depositions. We don't have to worry about the other seven. And the law firm responded to her, but look, if something happens, if something comes up that we need, either for direct examination or cross-examination by way of impeachment, we will not have had the opportunity to, uh, opportunity to depose those people. Her response was quite classic, and she said, Look, we are in the business every day of taking risk. 
That's the nature of our business. That's the nature of any and every business, is taking risk of one sort or another. And so I will take the risk of anything coming from those depositions that you did not take. By doing so, she received quality work. They were successful in their matter, and yet she saved over $500,000 by her um, uh, calculation. The other thing that clients are looking for is increased communication. You know, one of the things that we fail to do is we really fail to talk to our clients in a way that they understand. We fail to talk to clients oftentimes at all. In fact, the number one complaint still after all my years of coaching and consulting with lawyers and law firms all throughout the country, my, the, the number one complaint against lawyers as proven by the disciplinary boards of states all across the country is the failure to return phone calls. Now, in my opinion, and you can correct me if you want, uh, Annette, but in my opinion, the telephone is the single most least expensive methodology of marketing, of promoting your practice, of uh, communicating with your clients. Very true. And if I can add in a point, some of the things that I hear from people is that it's more, it's easier to have phone calls with people and be able to get your exchange back and forth at, you know, at one point in time instead of you know, email. So many people are emailing now that you have to, it's the additional time that it takes to recall and track through the email chain um, you know, is, is not a good use of a lot of people's time, and people forget easily. So I agree with you. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting because if you look at some of the surveys that have been done as to why clients refer their law firm to their colleagues, their acquaintances, their friends, you've got a number of factors. One is because of the individual lawyer. Another is because of the national presence of the lawyer, the reputation, the credibility of the lawyer, uh, because of a current relationship, uh, because of legal skills. You know, each one of these that I've mentioned is 20% or less of the reason why they refer you, their lawyer, to somebody else. The number one issue to the tune of more than double the, the other single highest uh, ranked uh, uh, item is good client service. 46% versus 20%, for example, for legal skills. Now, the converse of that is why do they leave your law firm? There is no single item here that is more than 10%. Unreasonable billing is 10%. Poor client service is 63%. That's why they leave law firms. That's why uh, people get upset with lawyers. And well, with I mean, this... If, if I could just jump in for a second, sure. Uh, you know the thing that the, one of the things that I hear from people is that they're paying they're paying good money, and you know for services, let's take it for example, uh, you know, a divorce case. If you're paying a, a large amount of legal fees, you you know you have an, an, an you know an interest in what's going on. You really appreciate it when you're able to talk to your attorney, and you know they're responsive to you. Very, and, and I can't imagine, you know, very many other times in our lives that um, that people pay fees for things where people are unavailable. You're right, and you happen to pick the single most aggravating time in one's life 
when you're getting a divorce. And many family law lawyers that I have talked to over the years, and I used to practice, among other things, in the family law area, are really upset because they feel like they're hand-holding the client. They feel like they're the client's shrink, and that's not what they were retained to be. And in fact, whenever a court uh, is called on to make the award uh, in a divorce case, they discard all that time that was for hand-holding. But in essence, that's what the client wants, and that's what the client needs. And so the lawyer that's able to uh, talk to the client about that and deal with the client and, and educate the client about that, that's the lawyer that's going to grow. So the issue here really is how can we achieve this? How can we make sure that we uh, uh, succeed? Well, one of the things you can do is look at the golden rule. The golden rule says that do unto others as they would like to have done to them. I'm sorry, do unto others as you would like to have done to you. And that is, in effect, the Nordstrom department store motto service to the customer above all else. And despite the fact that we've gone through a recessionary period, that golden rule has been elevated to the platinum rule, which in effect is the title of a book by Tony Alessandra. And what Tony said was, do unto others as they'd like done unto them. Now the question really becomes, how would you know? How do you know what somebody else wants done unto them? How, do, how would you know what the client is looking for from you? Well, real simple, ask. That is the essence. I'm sorry? Yes, talk to them. Ask them, you know, ask them questions. How do you want to be built? How do you want to communicate? How do you want to? I mean, as attorneys, you know, we all need to really realize that, you know, we have several, each of these clients is your boss. That's right. And we'll talk about billing and collecting um, shortly, but I can tell you that I'm able to determine uh, pretty much accurately whether you are going to get paid at the end of the matter by what you do at the very beginning of the matter in your intake process. That's kind of scary because most lawyers really don't understand what they do in the intake meeting, and they need to. So if you're going to look at the intake... I'm sorry? Managing expectations? Are we talking about managing expectations? You're talking about managing expectations. You're talking about your fee agreement, you're talking about setting the fee and the expectation for payment of the fee. Again, I'll get into the collection part of this down the road a bit, but it seems to me that the lawyer is so eager to get going, the lawyer knows what the client needs and fails to hear what the client wants. And that is really the essence of what we're talking about in managing client expectations. Very good, Ed. I appreciate all the information on the effective client relations, and I'm sure that your books and speaker series have even more, and I encourage people to get in touch with you. Let's pause quickly for a message from one of our sponsors. You are listening, by the way, to ALR, PRA Weekly Law Practice Management Radio, where we bring you the experts and attorneys who share the tips, trends, and latest updates that matter to your practice. 
And when you need the right legal services to advance your creativity, we're talking about intellectual property now, call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings her large law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, advertising law, as well as business litigation. You can find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. By clicking the like button on the law firm's business page, you'll receive periodic blog updates with recent developments in the rapidly changing field of intellectual property law. Now back to Ed Pohl. Uh, our next segment is going to be Metrics for Success. Ed, tell us how we measure our success. Well, um, there are a number of ways that we can measure success. Uh, one of the ways we can measure our success is by taking a look at your accounts receivable. Uh, this is done uh, under the rubric of realization rate. In other words, if you bill $100, do you get paid $100? If you bill $100 but you get paid $80, then your realization rate is only 80%. I had a conversation uh, a few weeks ago with a, a lawyer in uh, New York, and his annual revenue was $6 million. His accounts receivable is $5 million. Well, if you take a look at that in terms of a percentage, it's about 17%, give or take a, a few percentage points, um, decimal points. But that means that for every dollar he's billing, he's literally collecting only 17 cents. Now, when you base your overhead, when you base your expenditures, when you base your compensation on what you bill, but you don't collect it, then you're in deep trouble. Uh, there was a client of mine a number of years ago who thought that their problem was marketing. And so they hired a marketing consultant who went in there, took a look at what they did, and she, her comment was that you guys are well positioned in your practice area, in your geographic area. There's nothing I can do to really help you other than fine-tune what you're doing. But you do have a problem. I'm not sure what it is. Call Ed. So they called me, and I took a look at their financials. I took a look at their operation. And what happened was, essentially, the same kind of situation. They were spending based on what they were billing, but they were not collecting what they were billing, but rather substantially less. And so one of the first issues in terms of measuring your success is what are you collecting? Now, the realization rate really has two definitions. One definition is as I've just described it, collection versus billing. Another definition of realization rate is write-offs as contrasted to work um, time recorded. In other words, if you record 20 hours in a week, but you turn around and you, for whatever reason, bill only 15 hours a week, now you've got what? You've got a 75% realization rate. So you have a lower realization rate before you ever send the bill out. And the conclusion here is 
that many lawyers think that they're not entitled to get paid for the learning curve. So they will write down the bill. Now, when you write down a bill, oftentimes the lawyer doesn't even tell the client, so the client doesn't know. Or you have a young associate in the office who records extra hours because they're careful, they want to be right, and they want to make sure there's no mistakes, and you think that the client should not be billed for that. And so you write down your associate's time. All of that, again, is realization. The key here for success is to work, work hard, but bill everything that you work and then get paid for everything that you bill. So I would encourage you to take a look at your metrics in this regard before you do anything else. Now, uh, another metric success is tracking your billable time. Studies have shown that lawyers will lose anywhere from 10 to 15% in revenue by virtue of failing to record their time. Now, with a fixed fee, uh, alternative fee arrangement, or even a contingency fee arrangement, many lawyers are careless and do not record their time. Why? Because they don't think time is relevant. But time used to be the basis of determining whether you were profitable. That is, it was a management tool. Jump, jump again for a second. Ed, one thing I'd like to comment on also is that, and I don't know the, for all states, but I know that here in Illinois, the ARDC, our regulatory body, um, is has been requesting a breakdown of attorney time even on a flat fee uh, matters when there are complaints. Attorneys are are reproducing bills. I mean, we get calls on that. Help us reproduce a bill that they didn't track their time going on, and they're losing so much because you, it's so. There's so many things that don't get recorded. Absolutely, and and this is an interesting byproduct. There has been because of the uh, recession, as some call it, uh, a move to alternative fees to move away from the billable hour and uh, to either go to fixed fees or flat fees or even value-based uh, fees, and even in some cases, the ability to let the client determine what the fee will be. In other words, you send them a note of how many hours you've put in, what your traditional quote-unquote hourly rate is, and then you let them do the arithmetic and either subtract or add a bonus to that. But even in those situations, what I find is what you've expressed, Nick, and that is that uh, the disciplinary boards, when they determine whether a fee is reasonable, or in California they use the word unconscionable, they're going to look at time. And time really is irrelevant. Time used to be a management tool until the insurance companies got into it and started making it a pricing tool. And so our um, uh, regulatory boards are buying the insurance company mantra, much to the consternation of many, and saying, well, if you, if you build five hours and you charged $5,000, 
That's unreasonable. But they never look at the value that was provided to the client. There was a, there's an old um, parable about Edward Bennett Williams who got a call from a client who had a problem. And Williams said, okay, I'll take care of it. And he made a couple of calls, took him five, ten minutes. The matter was resolved. And he sent the client a bill for $25,000. The client called him up and said, this bill is outrageous. And Williams' response was classic. He said, wait a minute, how many millions of dollars did I save you because of the information I had and the people I knew? You don't think that's worth $25,000? <laughs> I sometimes well, wish I could bill, bill people for one. You know, I make referrals to people who uh, you know, greatly increase their business opportunities. I wish I could send them a bill for that. <laughs> Maybe I should. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, until, until the regulatory bodies change their mantra, change their attitude, there is no way that lawyers are going to be able you know, ethically able or or willingly going down the road of alternative fees. And there's going to be tremendous, tremendous um, cognitive dissonance between the client and the lawyer under those circumstances. Certainly. I, I you know, it's uh, you know, one of the things, it, it's gonna, it, things are changing, like I said, and uh, again, uh, things that I've been hearing from people um, is you know confirming my suspicions that a lot of our regulatory boards are going to be stepping in. And while they you know, traditionally hadn't been getting involved in fee disputes, um, especially in family law, and here in Illinois, uh, the ARDC rarely uh, you know got involved there. But now they're they're working on that. And um, one of the things that you know we're working on, I'm working on, and Ed, you might be interested in getting into this with me. Um, is some legislation um, to allow some more options for the regulatory uh, board to compel or offer the you know alternatives to suspending licenses by encouraging attorneys to undergo um, billing audits and fee audits and you know working with the insurance companies to uh, you know get on the same page. Ed, are you there? It looks like we lost Ed. Ed should be Ed, Ed should be calling back uh, in a second here. Um, while we wait for Ed, let's uh, take our a pause for uh, a sponsor break. Um, we'll have Ed back shortly. Sorry about that, folks. It looks like he got disconnected. Um, again, so you're listening to ALR PRA Law Practice Manager Radio, and we'd like to let you know that if you indeed do want more clients, there's a seasoned attorney that you need to talk to. Attorney Jim Thompson's program called Get Clients Now will help you with the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. To learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit MidwestConsultants.net and also check out his testimonials on Facebook. Search Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. 
You can get in touch with Jim Thompson by visiting MidwestConsultants.net. For those of you tuning in, this is ALR PRA Walk Practice Management Radio, and we're talking to Ed Pohl, who is telling us more about metrics for success, and uh, we'll continue to speak on billing and collecting fees, and finally, selling, buying and selling a law practice. We are going to, I'm going to call Ed here and find out what happened and have him call back in. Um, again, for callers to call in, you can dial area code 917-889-9732. Again, that number is 917-889-9732. Press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. Hi, Ed. Uh, we're still live. I lost you. If you want to di- dial back in to 917-889-9732, um, we'll pass you back in. We just paused for a sponsor break, and we're ready to uh, go ahead for our third segment. Uh, we were just finishing, uh, you just finished at the end of uh, me- Metrics for Success, uh, and we're talking about the uh, the billing uh, and the regulatory board. So uh, if you want to dial back in, we'll, we'll, uh, we're all ready for you. Thanks. Okay. See, technology sometimes is our best uh, asset, and sometimes <laughs> it can be a failure. So uh, we should have Ed dialing back in here shortly. Um, again, Ed Paul is a law practice management expert, one of the people I like to refer to as uh, one of the godfathers of law practice management. Ed's been doing law practice management services for so many years and um, frequently writes for the American Bar Association law practice management section. Uh, I frequently read Ed Paul's articles and uh, will comment on, on the same. And uh, Ed also just recently, again, wrote a book uh, titled, titled Growing a Law Practice in Tough Times. Uh, it's published by Tom, Wes Thompson Reuters and is okay. certainly available. Hi, Ed. I was just uh, promoting your book, the, the Growing Your Law Practice in Tough Times. Um, does your book – now, can we, can, we, can we ask if that book talks a little bit about metrics for success? I'm sorry. Say that again, Nick. Oh, I was referring to your new, the new book, The Growing Your Law Practice in Tough Times, and I'm wondering if that book does touch upon metrics for success and collecting and tracking billables and, uh, you know, things that we've been talking about. It does. It does. So they can get a, uh, they can get a, a better uh, sense of what's happening uh, by, by looking at that as well, by reading that. Now, where's that and I... It's available at uh, the West site. It's available on Amazon.com, and it's also available on um, on my website, which is www.lawbiz.lawbiz.com. Great. Now, do they? Do you also have information about that September 21st program here in Chicago on small firms? We we don't have uh, any more information uh, about it, other than. It will be about leadership and management of a law practice, and it will track uh, some of the issues that we talk about in the book, uh, about the tough times we've, we're facing, what kinds of trends we're looking for in, in the future, and uh, how to deal with them, how to deal with them. Excellent. And one of the things that I wanted to uh, throw out there, I started to talk about when I think of when I, when I lost you, um, I was mentioning uh, some legislation 
that I'm working on and was going to ask you to comment on the idea that a regulatory uh, agencies have an option of compelling attorneys to participate in uh, compliance audits, um, you know, sort of as an uh, effective tool to help them um, when, you know, because oftentimes a lot of the reports that we see of attorneys' suspensions and such really comes down to not, you know, intentionally blowing off clients, but really just having things falling through the cracks because, um, you know, just of practice management issues. Can you comment on that? Well, um, I think Illinois has set the standard of surprise for me, uh, as was evidenced by the Himmel case, which is a, uh, uh, an adjunct to what you're talking about. In the Himmel case, an Illinois case, um, Himmel was brought in as the second attorney to represent a client against the first attorney who had uh, stolen money from the client. And the first attorney said that um, he would repay the client, but required Himmel not to report him to the state bar. Himmel, for the protection of the client, agreed. And then the state bar found out about it, went after Himmel and sub suspended him. I think it was for a year because he failed to report the negligence or you know gross negligence, whatever they termed it, of the first attorney. And I think that's ludicrous. Um, it's a ludicrous result because the client is not protected that way. But similarly, what you're talking about, when you require lawyers to uh, uh, participate in a, in a management audit, you're doing something that nobody else does. No other profession, no other business, no other trade is, does those kinds of things. And I think it's a mentality of the regulators against the bar. Now, it's okay to protect the public, but the regulators are neither the public nor lawyers. So who are they representing? And it's clear in my mind that bar associations do not have the interests of lawyers in, in mind, despite the fact that the lawyers are their members. It's an interesting. It's the, you know these are very these, these are interesting concepts and and, uh, and you know the insurance. It, you know, a lot of people that I've spoken to with malpra mal the malpractice carriers uh, really like these audits and you know some people certainly enjoy doing uh, audits because they then will use that as leverage to reduce or you know control their malpractice insurance or where it comes up in fee disputes so it's it's a very it's a, it's a very hotly contested issue and people are all over the board on it um, you know one of the things that people keep suggesting that I sort of agree with is that preventative audits that are voluntary by the law firms um, as sort of a you know maintenance um, and making sure that your house is in order so to speak uh, a lot of people seem to like that so uh, whether whether it, it you know ends up being something that's offered by regulatory agencies as a as a, condi a condition or option in lieu of suspension, um, you know w w it remains to be seen. But you know it's certainly a contested issue. So, um, well, I, you know I I think an audit, if an individual wants to improve his or her practice, is appropriate. 
In, in fact, uh, Nancy Byerly Jones out of North Carolina wrote a book that was published by the American Bar Association entitled, I believe, Self-Assessment Audit. And you can do your own audit following her book. Uh, I do audits uh, for a fee, but that's on a voluntary basis, as you're suggesting. When, you, when, when the state bar requires it, it's a whole different issue because now, you know, when they, the information they get is not confidential. And if they, you know, and, and if the insurance company uh, wants the audit, well, that's their prerogative. But, you know, when they um, exercise that prerogative to require you to go through a management audit, a number of things have to happen first. One, that audit better be affordable. And number two, that audit better be confidential and not part of a state bar uh, record. And when the state bar, yeah, when the state bar gets into it by, by saying, as they did recently in California, that you have to have malpractice insurance or if you do not have malpractice insurance, you better notify your client of that. Now that seems to me a little bit heavy-handed. Yeah, we're and, and Ed, this is uh, this is fodder for a whole other radio show. We should probably do maybe on risk management and audits. But right now, let's pause and take a call. The call from this caller here, um, calling from a, a Chicago suburban area code. Caller, go ahead. Caller uh, from 708 area code just dialed in. Go ahead. We're alive with Ed Pohl. Are you there, caller? Okay, we. Okay, for some reason we can't get our our callers there, but um, okay. Well, anyways, let's move on to our third segment on billing and collecting fees. As I mentioned uh, in an earlier segment, you can pretty much tell when uh, at at the beginning whether you're going to get paid at the end, and. One of the ways of doing that is by having a complete uh, communication, a complete interactive session with your client. Psychologists say that there is listening and then there is active listening. You want to make sure that you are in the mode of active listening. And what that really means is that you hear what your client is saying and then you pair it back to the client, what you think he or she said, and ask them, was that a correct interpretation? When you do that, you're going to be in much better shape to collect your fee. Now, another thing that I think is important about collection is having a written fee agreement, something that most bar associations under most circumstances will require of their counsel in order to get uh, paid. And in that written fee agreement, where you talk about the fee in the margin of your, of your paper, put a rubber stamp, a signature stamp. And where you say $150 an hour or you know, $3,000 fixed fee or whatever your fee arrangement is, make sure that they've read that paragraph as is evident by their initialing that area where the rubber stamp is. And that you also initial it, indicating that you both read it at the same time, reviewed it, talked about it, 
and accepted it. So that's number one. Now, uh, your fee has to be uh, reasonable under Rule 1.5 of the American Bar Association model rules. And um, it seems to me that one of the things that lawyers really fail to do is they fail to assert themselves when a client, for whatever reason, fails to pay the bill. Now, in my experience, a bill is going to not be paid under a limited set of circumstances. One, the company has gone south. The, uh, the, the client has lost their job and has no money to do anything but put food on the table, and sometimes not even that. And you really ought to be in a position to know when that is going to happen. And how would you know? You would know that if you have frequent communication and interaction with your client. Now, in the last couple of years, that may have been a little bit more difficult to do because so many people were hit so suddenly as a result of the financial crisis, sort of like in the Great Depression. So except for the last couple of years in which there may be an excuse, there really is no excuse for you not knowing the financial health of your client. Number two, the client didn't get the bill. Well, you know, that happens. Mail goes awry. Email never arrives. These things happen. So have somebody pick up the phone and call the client to make sure that the client received the bill. If the client did not receive the bill, then make sure they get a copy of the bill. A third reason why your bill isn't going to be paid is because they didn't understand the bill. And if that be the case, make sure that you get on the phone and talk to them and explain to them what you did, why you did it, and what the result was for their benefit. A fourth reason why they're not paying the bill is because they did not ask you to do that which you did. Um, remember, I talked earlier about a general counsel who was able to arrange with their outside counsel to take a limited number of depositions. If the outside counsel had billed them for all 15 depositions, I guarantee the, the, the general counsel would have been very upset and probably not paid that bill. And so you really have to talk to your clients, tell them what you're going to do, do it, and then explain to them appropriately in simple English what you did in the bill that you sent out to them. If you've done all that and you're still not getting paid, then you've got to do something else. And now we go into the collection mode. One of the things that insurance companies keep telling us is, don't sue your client. Why? Because a common defense approach is to have the uh, client countersue or cross-complain for negligence, for malpractice. Now, all of a sudden, the insurance company is involved. I remember one time I sued a client when I was still practicing law, and I won and as we walked out the door, the client said, damn, you're good. And I turned to him and I said, well, that's why you hired me in the first place. You should have paid the bill. You shouldn't have ignored me. 
you know, I would have worked out a payment program with you. But, you know, and, and, and yeah, I took a risk that maybe he was going to file a cross-complaint. But, you know, <clears throat> I got angry. I got angry because he just didn't pay. He ignored me. He didn't tell me he was hurting. He didn't tell me he had financial problems. He didn't tell me any of the other reasons why. He just ignored me. And, I, and, and that, just for that particular instant, really upset me. And I said, you know what? If I don't act now, others of my clients and prospective clients will understand that my billing is not serious, that my engagement agreement is not serious. One of the things my mother taught me is say what you mean and mean what you say. Yeah. And so when, when lawyers tell me that they have accounts receivable of 150 days, but their engagement agreement says that the terms of the agreement are that the, pay, the client pay in 30 days, I say to them, I'm not sure I want you to represent me. Because if you can't take care of yourself, how can you take care of me? That's a very good point. And so I, I think it's important for lawyers to understand that they're running a business and that the people that they take on as clients are running a business and look at you with greater respect if you honor your side of the agreement and expect them to honor their side of the agreement as well. Well, and another thing is that that encourages referral business. I worked, um, well, a personal story of mine, I worked uh, in the past at a suburban family law firm, and I was the motion to withdraw and fee petition henchman. And it was terrible because, um, you know, the, the clients were getting billed, you know, they were getting billed twice a month, and the set, you know, and the second they didn't pay, they were on a low fee. They were on this low fee list. The attorney, the associates, couldn't do work on because they wouldn't get paid for the work they were doing. And you know, a fee petition was filed. The case wasn't even done. It would be in the middle of discovery. And you know, it's an enter and continue a petition for fees. And you know, angering these clients who are never ever going to refer that law firm, you know, new business. So it's just a, a horrible, really a horrible thing. And one of the things that very seriously caused me to, uh, you know, refocus what I wanted to do professionally in helping law firms, you know, work and do better business. So uh, we're on the same page with a lot of these things. And the other thing that I want to raise in this time uh, concept, uh, Nick, is that you have to ask yourself um, who's handling the collections in your office. Most lawyers believe that they need to pick up the phone and make the phone call. In fact, the large law firms find themselves collecting roughly two-thirds of their revenue in the last one-third of the year. And the reason for that is because their compensation uh, for the following year is set on how much they've collected this year. But up until that time, up until October, November, December, they ignore their accounts receivable. And it seems to me that a lawyer should never call a client to collect an outstanding bill unless and until they're ready to fire the client if the client doesn't pay. <clears throat> the lawyer should do only two things, in my opinion. Legal services because only the lawyer is licensed by the state to do so, and 
marketing for new legal services because only the client can I mean only the lawyer can determine whether they want to represent this particular client. Anything else can and should be done by somebody else with greater expertise. And this includes collecting. Because the client understands you're there to sell more legal services. The client understands that you're there to do the legal work. The minute you start making a phone call to collect the bill from the client, the client now sees you as the bookkeeper, as the collector. And so when you now call the client next because you need information about their matter, they're going to wonder, are you calling me because of the outstanding bill? I know I owe you money. This is not a secret. I know that. Or are you calling me because of my case? And when that doubt arises in the minds of the client, they're not going to take your call. Right, right. And now you, you, you've lost the opportunity to effectively represent them, and you've lost the opportunity to collect your bill. So have somebody else in your office call. Right, because a client doesn't want you looking at them thinking, well, my attorney only looks at me as a dollar sign and, you know, get out of my pocket. So very good points, Ed. Thank you for the information on billing and collecting fees. Ed, before we discuss some of the final key points uh, on buying and selling a law practice, we want to stop and pause and remind people that they're tuning in to ALRPRA Weekly Law Practice Management Radio, where we bring you the experts and attorneys who share the tips and latest trends that matter to your law practice. Also, we wanted to let you know about Bridges Court Reporting. Bridges Court Reporting Service provides the luxuries that premier law firms need and extends far beyond the professional courtesies and style that have made Bridges Court Reporting a well-known name nationwide. The Bridges Court Reporting website is available to schedule all of your court reporting uh, events, depositions, and hearings and such. And also, their software available on that website allows you to access all of your transcripts and exhibits anywhere from a computer with Internet access. Now, before long, you'll wonder why you ever used another court reporting agency. Conveniently located across the street from the Daily Center in Chicago, Bridges Court Reporters are ready to serve all of your court reporting and transcription needs. Remember that Bridges Court Reporters are available nationwide. Please visit BridgesCourtReporting.com for more information and to schedule your next court reporter. Now, back to Ed Pohl, uh, law practice management expert. Uh, Ed, let's uh, round out. Uh, we got about five minutes to talk about buying and selling law practices. Before I go there, Nick, let me make an offer to your listeners. A new product that literally uh, just came on the market a day ago of mine is called the Three-Dimensional Lawyer, the Three Dimensions of the Business of Law. It is a three-CD pack, and if any of your listeners call, I will send this out to them on a complimentary basis. And this is normally being sold uh, now for uh, $247, as I recall, a value uh, that I will uh, donate to your listeners. It's 120 minutes of quality CD recording. How do they get a hold of you? Contact me at edpoll, E-D-P-O-L-L, at lawbiz, L-A-W-B-I-Z, dot com, or call me at 800-837-5887. Very good. Okay, so buying and selling a law practice, what's the skinny? Well, um, the skinny is that most lawyers think that they have nothing of value. 
They have nothing of value to sell. And the ironic thing is that they have spent 20, 30, 40 years building up this thing that they think has no value, building up this thing that um, has produced a revenue stream for them for all these years that's put food on the table and allowed them to live a reasonably good life. A, in another context, there was a study by Mass Mutual, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and Marquette University that showed 75% of business owners have no idea how to handle what will perhaps be the single most important financial decision of their future. What are they going to do in retirement? There will be in the next 10 years retire. And that has nothing to do with the financial crisis. That may have delayed it a little bit, where lawyers perceive that they need to work a little longer than they did before, you know, than they originally contemplated. But they will be retiring. And what do they do with this practice that they've built? Do they walk away? Do they close the doors? What happens to the accounts receivable? Do they just evaporate? Uh, do they go home and just collect the accounts receivable? Uh, of course, what most people fail to realize is that when the client knows that you're closing your door, all of a sudden they become scarce. All of a sudden, what used to be an 80 90% realization rate becomes a 20 30 40% realization rate. So you not only lose the value of your practice because you fail to sell it. You also lose on the collectability of your accounts receivable just by virtue of clients' psychological attitudes towards this event. So it seems to me that it, some, some people have said, well, you know, I'm a sole practitioner. I really don't have anything to, of value to sell. And I disagree. You have a lot to sell. You've built up a tremendous amount of goodwill over the years. Uh, you have a phone number that many people have committed to memory. You have a client list. You have a group of people who have repetitive client needs. You have a group of people who have been well served by you over the years and who, even if they don't have repetitive legal needs, refer your name to other people. So you have a lot of goodwill. There's tremendous value even in a small practice. Now, there's a difference between value on the one hand and price on the other. And I want to make that very clear because price is determined by a lot of things unrelated to value. For example, price can be determined by the reason you're selling. Are you retiring? In which event, it doesn't have to be tomorrow. It could be six months from now. In which event, the price can be a little bit higher. Or... Did you die and your estate has to come in now and uh, take care of the practice and sell it? There's a short time frame on that. That has to be done very quickly. That tends to lower the price. Um, are, you are you disabled? Same thing. Have you taken an appointment to the bench? Well, many appointments to the bench require that you close your practice in 30 days. Again, that's going to impact your pricing. So uh, a number of other factors 
uh, will determine your price, not the value. One is negotiating skills. Another is how much leverage you have in terms of your relationship to your clients and the relationship between what you have to offer and what the buyer wants, how badly the, the buyer wants your practice because it fills a niche in their uh, offerings. In other words, you may have um, a, uh, an estate planning practice and a family law practitioner may want to add that uh, to the group of services that they offer to their clients because many divorced people have to change their wills and trusts and so forth and it's a natural complement to their practice. Uh, all these other reasons are, are important impact on the pricing of the, uh, uh, of the practice. Another factor that impacts the price is whether the lawyer is willing and able to stay with the law firm for some transitional period, whether it be a month, six months, a year, what have you. These are all factors. But the bottom line issue that I want to leave your listeners with here is the message is that every practice, even a small practice, has value and can be sold and should not just be closed. Thank you so much, Ed. We appreciate all of this great expert, expert information. You have so many publications available. Thank you again for appearing today. And uh, we'll probably do another show and talk more about audits when we have more time. Sound good to you? <laughs> My pleasure. My pleasure. Okay. Thank, thanks again, Ed. Ed's, uh, Ed's website is lawbiz.com, right? Yes. Okay, lawbiz.com. And, um, again, we'd like to thank Ed Pohl. We'd also like to thank our uh, great sponsors. Uh, we've got the Intellectual Property Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme, Jim Thompson of Midwest Consulting Group, and Debbie Bridges of Bridges Court Reporting. ALRPRA Incorporated's mission is to educate the legal community on relevant law practice management issues and to help our law firms spend more time serving their clients by professionally managing their production and promotional activities. Our mission's underlying values are transparency, flexibility, and humility. We are a full-service law practice management agency available nationwide when professional quality matters to your firm. Thank you again, and please tune in next Tuesday, June 15th at 3 p.m., that's right, Tuesday, for a special lecture titled, quote, Speak Loudly and Clearly if You Want to Invoke Your Constitutional Right to Remain Silent, end quote. Nationally recognized criminal defense attorney Sarah Elizabeth Dill of the law firm of Perry, Krumziak & Jack will cover the history, evolution, and recent changes to the Miranda rights as you know them. We encourage people to share this information with anybody who may ever encounter law enforcement. This is relevant, again, for lawyers and non-lawyers, anyone out there. The, the Miranda rule, as you know it, is different. Again, this is Nick Augustine for ALRPRA Incorporated, and we thank you for your time.